There was once a time in which British cycling was, uh, was a, in a desperate situation. From 1908 until 2008, they had only won a, symbol, uh, a single Olympic gold medal. And that was all the way back in 1908. Uh, their performance was so bad that a top uh, European bike manufacturer didn't even want to, uh, to support the British team because they didn't want people in the public seeing the team using their gear and their name because they were so bad that uh, they just didn't want that bad publicity for their, uh, for their equipment. However, in the early 2000s, the organization hired a guy named Dave, uh, Dave Brailsford, who was a cyclist himself, uh, but more so a, a coach. And uh, he had a novel idea about how to regain some, some British dominance in, uh, in uh, the uh, cycling world. And so he wanted to do this by striving towards something that he called uh, marginal gains. And the marginal gains is this idea that if, uh, if they broke everything down to just 1% improvement, that there would be a significant increase in everything that they did. So if they upped their gear by 1%, or if they upped their training by 1%, or whatever it was, that 1% margin of, of gain would improve their sport dramatically uh, at some uh, specific time. His team had made tiny adjustments in hundreds of different areas. Uh, they redesigned bike seats to improve their comfort. They even rubbed alcohol on their tires in order to improve the traction on the road. Uh, they switched their racing suits to something that is more aerodynamic so that they wouldn't have as much resistance uh, with, uh, with biking. And within a few years, those 1% improvements uh, both accrued and accelerated and within Eight years, just eight years, they dominated the British cycling uh, world. And at the 2008 uh, Olympic Games in Beijing, they didn't just win their first gold since 1908, but they had an incredible 60% of the gold medals that were handed out in cycling uh, at that particular uh, Olympics. Four years later, um, at the London Olympic Games, they set nine Olympic records and seven world records. So we see that that 1% improvement made a huge difference in the British cycling. And that they had proven that the smallest increment of improvement can have a massive good result uh, in the long run. The same is true for how the church ought to uh, relate and, uh, and be engaged within the community. We've been talking uh, the, or taking the last number of months to uh, brainstorm who we are as a church and, and where we ought to be and, and what is the foundation and what are the pillars or the, uh, the purposes of our church. And today we're going to look at the fifth pillar or the, or the fifth purpose. Um, next week we'll look at the sixth and then uh, we'll take a break a little bit for Christmas before we move on from there. And the fifth pillar uh, says something like this as a summary. Out of the love that we have experienced from God in Christ Jesus, we are to strive toward making our community and our world a better place by being mindful of its needs and sacrificial in our service. I'll say that one more time because that was a lot of words and I'm often long-winded. Out of the love that we have experienced from God in Christ Jesus, we are to strive toward making our community and our world better by, uh, uh, by being mindful of its needs and sacrificial in our service. 
Uh, if we were to close our doors tomorrow and Emmanuel Baptist Church would no longer exist, would that affect our community in the least bit? Would our community be worse off or, or better off if we weren't here? As people who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus, we ought to be ones that serve and edify and transform our community so much so that if we no longer existed, the community would feel the impact of the loss. We are to serve and edify and transform so that people's hearts can be more receptive to the gospel message that we preach. And so today we're going to look at the logic of this pillar uh, by looking at three things. Uh, we're going to be looking at the source of the pillar, the need uh, of the pillar, and the action of this pillar. So let's break that up into three different ways. The first is that we need to realize the source of uh, edification, which is uh, love toward and in response to Jesus. The source of edification, the way that we interact with the community, comes from the love uh, toward and in response to Jesus. In Matthew 22, um, there's, this, there's a scene in which uh, various religious groups of the day try to trap Jesus in his logic by asking him questions that were really hot-button issues uh, of the day. Uh, they asked him about taxes, um, which I'm really glad taxes is no longer a hot-button issue today. But they ask him about taxes, they ask him about the resurrection, and these are both uh, topics that are sure to polarize, uh, polarize the, uh, the community that they lived in. And when they find out that they can get nowhere, they send the most logical person next to ask a question, and that is a lawyer. And a lawyer comes in, he steps up, and he tries his hand at tripping up Jesus with a question about the law. And in verse 36, notice he says, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Notice that he is asking him, uh, what is the most basic, most important thing that someone can do? If Jesus doesn't answer this question right, then he loses all credibility. And so the answer is quite simple. Jesus and every other uh, Jewish uh, kid that had, um, had grown up in this area probably recited the answer every single day, uh, probably morning and evening within their house. It was the quintessential Jewish declaration of faith. We all read it here together just a few uh, minutes ago. It's, a, it is from, uh, it's called the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy 6. Jesus quotes it here in a second. Uh, it's, a, it's not just a law that is that is binding for Jewish people, however. The, the Shema here is binding on every single human being. It is the first and greatest uh, commandment, and it's the first and greatest sin that every single one of us are guilty of. What is it? Well, Jesus says in verse 37, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and great command. So notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say this is the first and greatest suggestion. This is a command. This is an imperative. It is a directive from the sovereign of the universe. This is the great and first commandment because God is the first and greatest being in the universe. To love anything else before him is an affront to his greatness. To love anything more than God or love something before him is a moral crime. 
It is perhaps the greatest, most pervasive, most disregarded law in the world. Most people end up in eternal anguish, not necessarily because of big, uh, noticeable sins, but because they first chose not to love God above and beyond everything else. But praise be to God, however, that, that Jesus perfectly loved the Father. There was not one moment in his life that he did not perfectly love God the Father as this command uh, commands us to do. And praise be to God that despite our lack of love for God, Jesus' perfect love for the Father is credited to us by grace through faith. And little by little, uh, slowly as we are uh, growing uh, more and more uh, in, in faithfulness to Jesus, the more and more love we have for our God and Father. It increases our affections. And uh, that love that we have for God, which is actually mediated through the perfect love of Jesus, is not meant to be individually sentimentalized uh, and kept to ourself. God displays his love to us in Christ Jesus uh, so that we can then display that love to the world and that they can see the glory of Jesus and that they can experience the grace that is found in him. That's why Jesus doesn't stop here just at the first and great commandment. He actually goes on and says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus knows uh, that the second great commandment is inseparable from the first. You can't love God fully without loving others. You can't love others fully without loving God. They, they are together in that. Jesus goes on then in verse 40 to say, on these two commandments depend all of the law and all of the prophets. So everything that we read here in the scripture is all dependent on our love for God and our love for others. And this is not only binding on us as individual Christians, but it's also woven into the purposes of the church. There are a lot of churches that do really good at serving the community that they are a part of. There are, uh, they're really well known for meeting needs. And this is often called in church circles the, the social gospel. But without a proper love for God and a motivation for them uh, to, to know Jesus, it's no different than a government welfare program. Sure, they may feel good about it, but unless the goal is getting those that they serve to hear and receive the news that their sinful souls have been redeemed through the work of Christ on their behalf, that there is freedom uh, in recognizing and repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus, then they, they can have that freedom. And that they uh, can be disciplined in faith to realize that, that they have freedom in Christ. And if that goal is not to look at that gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done, they're just simply making people more comfortable as they walk their way into hell. On the other hand, there are a lot of churches that are really good at preaching the truth. 
But they don't give a hoot about the community that is around them. They, they circle the wagons and they, they forget that just as God uh, invaded our world in the person and work of Jesus Christ when he took on flesh, we, the body of Christ, are to invade the world with the grace and truth that is in him. We uh, can't neglect this on fear of failure or rejection. Jesus, the eternal God, took on flesh, entered into our world, and they crucified him for it. And yet we are reluctant to go across the street unless we know that we're going to be 100% successful in everything that we do. Friends, love is not a noun. It is not a thing. It is not an emotion. It's a verb. And God calls us as the church to fight against the enemy's stranglehold on our community, not with weapons of war, but with acts of love. Our love for God ought to show in how we relate to the community. And second, we should recognize the need and the goal. It's not really hard to see the need, is it? To be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community, all you really need to do is, is get in your car and, or walk down the street to the Mora food shelf on a Tuesday or a Friday and see the needs that are, that are there. We, we only need to call one of our social workers at the county to know the, uh, the many uh, uh, needs of having foster families are and the needs of having foster children placed in, in loving homes. Um, we can call Bethany Lutheran Service to see how many uh, children are waiting to be adopted right here in, in Minnesota alone. It wouldn't take much to see how much uh, need there is to go grocery shopping for a, a shut-in and bringing and delivering those groceries. You know, I sit on the school board advisory committee and we meet every couple of months at the school. And, and at our last meeting, one of the uh, principals mentioned how they were trying to tackle um, truancy more, uh, kids not being in school, but they're really kind of prevented from tackling that because their school counselor is dealing with, and, get, and I was shocked when I heard this, is dealing with, on average, anywhere from four to six suicidal students a day. Not a week. A day. Now, probably most of them are, are the same students every day, but that's a lot of attention that one needs to give to certain students. What can we do to improve the mental health of those around us? Take a drive around and see the many houses that are in disrepair. And um, uh, the reason why, because the homeowners are unable to do anything, either financially or physically. How can the church use that as an avenue for the gospel? How many grieving people are out there from the loss of a spouse or a child? How many single mothers and fathers are struggling to do something as simple as getting an oil change because their schedules are so busy? The needs are endless, but so are the opportunities. And again, please hear me. I am not saying that we ought to just edify the community and leave it at that. If that were the case, I would almost say it's better not to do anything. We have to have the heart of the gospel in, in mind with the goal of introducing people to the person and work of Jesus and the saving grace that's in him. I did a little uh, data digging this week and I found out that our county has just over 16,000 people living in it. It's hard to believe. I don't know where they all are because Ogilvy's rather small and Moore is only about, I don't know, 3,500, 4,000. So there's a lot of people out there. But of that 16,000, only 37% can 
consider themselves religious in any way. That's not just Christian, it's anything. Only 37%. That uh, amounts to over, a little over 10,000 people right here in Canaba County who don't consider themselves religious. That tells me that even more don't trust in Christ because we're lumping all religions together there. But they're serving other false ideas or worldly passions. When we think about our attempts to edify the community, Matthew 9 uh, is a good template for us. Let's go to Matthew chapter 9 if you're already open uh, to Matthew. And in Matthew 35, or sorry, 9.35, uh, there's uh, an interesting little vignette there. In verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, earnestly pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send the laborers into the harvest. Now, when we look at that verse, it's, it's a very popular verse for a mission Sunday where we want to give a push to uh, have people consider being missionaries or supporting missionaries, which is a great thing. The problem is, is that we often focus just on those last few verses of praying for workers to go into the harvest. But uh, did you notice, though, on how all this is predicated? It is all based on Jesus' going, teaching, preaching, healing, and compassion. They are to go and proclaim the gospel, and it was, it was primed by Jesus serving the people. He didn't neglect the teaching and the preaching, but he also had the service. Now check out what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to be imitators of Jesus. So what Jesus was about, we need to be about. Uh, what he values, we need to value. Obviously, there are some things about Jesus that we're, we're not able to, uh, to do. Obviously, he was God. You know, we can't uh, uh, do certain things. We have those limitations. But what we can, we ought to. So why not take this verse upon ourselves? Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Friends, the need is great. Just walk outside the church and take a drive around town. People are crying out for help and relief in all different directions, and they have absolutely no idea that the rest and the relief that they desperately need is, is really found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Who's going to go and tell them? We need to... Uh, bring it to them. This leads us right into our last point. It's a real simple one. Go. Go. The last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended to the right hand of God on high, um, according to Matthew anyway, is what we call the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. So you're welcome to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at this much more closely next week in our last uh, pillar or purpose, but we do need to at least look at it in light of our uh, pillar of edification. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, 
Jesus said, came and uh, said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's a lot of verbs in that. I don't know if you were counting verbs uh, or not. Um, I tend to do that every so often. Uh, but there are some verbs in here that are, that are uh, stronger than others. And uh, one of the strongest ones is the word go. Go, therefore. It's literally going, therefore. So as you go about, as you go about your life, these are what you should do. And I'm not sure what happened in evangelicalism, uh, but it started in the 1970s, and it boomed in the 90s, and, and uh, you still see it today, that the church model said, come and see. It's based on the idea of if we can just build a bigger church, have a better worship band, have really cool effects, make it a really welcoming environment, make it just this awesome place that we can go to, best music, best technology, a dynamic speaker, top-of-the-line children's ministry and youth ministry, then people will come and hear about Jesus. Now, that's fine and good. Some churches have done some really amazing things with that, but that's not according to Jesus' directive. I've said a, I said a couple weeks ago that... Um, what we do here on a Sunday morning at Emmanuel, this is not meant to be evangelism. This is not meant to be the place where unbelievers come in and hear the gospel and are changed. They, they can, and that's certainly great if that happens, but that is not the purpose of what we do here. What we do here is equip soldiers, bind their wounds, and send them back out into the battle. Why is that our philosophy? Because Christ did not say, come and see. He said, go and tell. We're to be people who go from this place into a world that desperately needs him. And uh, we need to expand the kingdom, but we can't expand the kingdom when we're sitting in the barracks. James makes this point very clear in James chapter 2 when he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without, uh, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, then show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Great, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified uh, by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, also, Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, there's a lot of theological thickness going on there. And, and, and I can send out later today or tomorrow um, uh, the message that I did from this when we went through James a number of years ago. And, and perhaps that's helpful to, to kind of balance out the, uh, the tension in here. But the point for our purpose today is this. We can't just sit on this grace. And we can't uh, just hoard it and keep it close to the chest. Faith is never meant to be a private faith. Rather, it is meant to be shared so that as many people as possible can enjoy Jesus. And in our cultural climate, one of the most powerful things that we can do is reach out to our communities and our spheres of influence uh, to improve them through our service. So let's improve. Let's edify the community to increase the receptiveness of the gospel and, and helping to uh, warm them up to the love of Christ so that they can hear the gospel and be saved. This British cycling team, uh, quite honestly, was terrible for 100 years. And it uh, took only, uh, it only took on um, uh, a few tweaks. 1% increase in a lot of very, very small things, and it made a huge difference. 1%. 1% is absolutely nothing. What if we as a church went to the community of Mora or to Ogilvy? and improved it by just 1%. What would it look like in five years, 10 years, 20 years? What if we increased that 1% to 5%, 5% to 10%? What would our community look like? How would it be shaped for the gospel? What kind of gospel fruit would we see if we opened up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our hands, and our wallets for the glory of God? Friend, friends, God calls us to be a church that is invested in edifying and uh, edifying our neighbors and our community through service. So would you pray that you would personally be involved in God's transformation for what he's doing here? And would you pray about how Emmanuel as a local church could make a huge impact in our community? Will you pray that our hearts would be sheltered from the motivation to just simply be good neighbors and leave it at that. But that our motivation would be purely from a love that is rooted in God's gospel so that many can hear of the good news that Christ has done. Let's pray to that end, friends. Father, we come to you begging for your grace and your mercy. We need you in this, Lord. Lord, many of us become Christians, and it's exciting at first, and we want to tell the world, but as time goes by, we tend to get seasoned, and we get lazy. And so, Father, I pray that that would not be the course of our church. I pray that you would quicken our hearts and our souls and our minds and our eyes and ears and, and everything that we need to be for you and for this community, God. Lord, would you help individuals here uh, pray about how to personally be involved in this transformation? Lord, I pray for our church as a whole that we would make a huge impact on our community. 
Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts. And Father, I pray that five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, that Mora would be a beacon of hope because Emmanuel decided that one of our purposes was to edify the world that we live in. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.